What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here. Uh, I'm in the home studio here at Pond City Market, uh, but my interview guest, Mr. Chris Weitz, was in New York City. Don't do a lot of these remote hookups much. Uh, I've talked about it before. Uh, It's not the greatest situation in the world, but uh, Chris was a really good guy and very conversational, and uh, I think we pulled it off. Uh, You might know Chris from, geez, he's done so many things. He, He started his career and uh, got the most attention right out of the gate uh, with a movie he co-directed with his brother, uh, American Pie, and just got so much collateral on that first film being such a big hit. He was able to do a lot of interesting things uh, after that, like acting in a wonderful uh, sort of demented little indie that I love called Chuck and Buck. Uh, He also co-directed Down to Earth, uh, was nominated for an Oscar award for screenplay for About a Boy, uh, which he uh, co-wrote and co-directed as well. Just a wonderful, wonderful film. One of my favorites. Uh, He also was a writer on Rogue One, Star Wars movie. And his new film in theaters uh, August 29th is called Operation Finale. And uh, they set up a screening for me here in Atlanta. And boy, was it good. It's uh, it's a story of the real true story of the hunt and capture and trial of Adolf Eichmann. Uh, He was one of the... um, one of the architects of the uh, Nazi campaign in World War II and kind of the one of the big, the only one of the big three that escaped justice uh, for a long time, uh, living in uh, South America uh, under a different name. Uh, they finally caught up to him. And this is that story starring um, Ben Kingsley as Eichmann and Oscar Isaac uh, as uh, kind of the guy who leads the team uh, in a sort of Argo-esque way. To, to grab and kidnap this man 
and get him out of the country somehow uh, under the radar. And uh, also co-stars uh, Nick Kroll and uh, Melanie Lauren. And she's just wonderful in everything that she's in. It was just a really good movie. A very taut, suspenseful, um, sort of ticking clock political uh, thriller period piece. It's all those things. <laughs> really good movie. Hope you guys go out and see it. You'll really enjoy it. And uh, we had a great talk today about his career and his interesting life growing up. Uh, I did not know that he had a, a long family history in, in Hollywood and beyond. So that was super cool to to learn about. And his pick was just a little film, just a little nothing indie called Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, one of the, probably the epic of all epics in the in the age of the epic Hollywood film, Lawrence of Arabia even stands alone. And I had never seen it. And this is one of those, it's long been on the list and I got to watch it um, at my house. Uh, I'm definitely going to go check it out in the theater next time they have a uh, an anniversary screening or something because it was something else. What a great, great film. I get the hype now, everyone. Lawrence of Arabia is awesome and um, really something to to behold as a viewer. So uh, we had a great conversation, even though we were a thousand miles apart. Uh, here we go with Chris White's on Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, I'm glad we're getting to talk because you are a uh, you're a multi hyphenate, as they call it in the business. Yeah. Uh, well, let me see. so, uh, the, I mean, the actor stuff doesn't really count because I only did that twice. Oh, but Chuck uh, and Buck is such a good movie. <laughs> Chuck and Buck sticks in people's minds. I loved it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks, man. <laughs> I'm a huge Mike White fan and it was, uh, yeah. he's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. He's that, brilliant. That's a great one. Um, yeah, no, that, that was, uh, I'm, I'm so glad I did that movie before, um, I got to establish to worry, not to worry about it. Um, it was great. <laughs> uh, really bizarre the way that came about, which is that M Miguel Arteta, who gone, had gone to school with my brother and um, sent us both the script because we looked alike, basically. Because uh -huh. he needed two characters to look alike and he wanted to have non-actors in it. Um, it there, there were no other qualifications. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I loved and, it, man. I thought it was great. And it was, um, oh, nice. it's interesting because you're a guy who, and this is one of my favorite qualities, I think, in a filmmaker is, uh, you've really done a lot of different things in your career. I mean, obviously you and your brother, I mean, you co-wrote the movie Ants, uh, an mm -hmm. animated film, and then you and your brother really made your name for yourself with the American Pie movie. And then right after that, you started Chuck and Buck and then did Down to Earth and About a Boy. And like you really, I never knew what yeah. to expect from you guys. And I, I always appreciate that about uh, we, artists. We try, to, we try to keep things weird. Uh, in general, have the strangest filmographies possible. I mean, I think um, uh, we, w when we got the chance to direct our first movie, it happened to be American Pie, and it was it's a movie that I love and loved making. But it wasn't like the 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 thing that my heart desired most of all. I'd never been to uh, high school in America, um, didn't go to prom, so I was working in a genre that I didn't really know. Uh, very well uh -huh. so so definitely the uh intent was to do something different as, as soon as possible and chuck and buck was the next thing that we did it was a sort of strange indie possibility yeah uh, you know feature shot on dv as close to a dogma film i think as you can get in for sure america at the time um and uh and also some some weird kind of sexual politics stuff mm -hmm. um uh, lgbtq 
before all of the letters had been put together in that way. Yeah. Kind of um, uh, interesting intersectional stuff uh, that was great to be a part of. Um, because also I sort of felt like I felt a little guilty having made a studio. <laughs> now I yeah. don't feel guilty anymore. Um, but it was <laughs> a way to, to sort of say, oh, you know, we, we have this kind of foot in the indie world. My brother still makes uh, independent films, um, uh, which is great. Uh, and I will probably do that next. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that the thing was not to be pigeonholed. I mean, it, it, there, there's a threat to that too, though, which is that you sort of don't get a brand. Mm -hmm. And everybody apparently has to brand themselves. Um, uh, but um, it's because you don't necessarily have an identifiable visual um, uh, sort of uh, gallery of, of things. They're, they're quite different um, in a way. Uh, but, but I'm happy to, to live with that. Yeah, I mean, American Pie certainly got you guys a ton of collateral. Like to have a smash hit mm -hmm. like that right out of the gate. Uh, and I think, yeah. I mean, I don't know how it works on the inside. You talked about having a brand, but it seems like you get a lot of interesting things thrown your way, whether it be like the Twilight franchise with New mm -hmm. Moon or, for God's sakes, uh, writing Rogue One. Yeah. I mean, what an so opportunity, you know? That was a huge opportunity. That was a dream for me. I mean, I saw Star Wars when I was seven and uh, my favorite film would be Star Wars, except that I think it's too boring because it's everybody's favorite film. <laughs> um, so uh, when when I got to, to write uh, Rogue One, it was something that I've been hoping for 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 years since I'd heard that they were going to uh, make make new films, uh, and it, it happened to be exactly what I would have wanted to do, which was the opening crawl. That is to say, mm. you know, the, it, I, I'm kind of an orthodox, ultra orthodox Star Wars fan. Like yeah. all that really matters to me are episodes four, five, and six. Uh, -huh. uh, and nothing outside of that is canon to me. Uh, so to be able to work in that uh, area was, was just fantastic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, I even, I rarely do this, but I put out a call on our Facebook page about, you know, I'm talking to Chris Weitz. What do you want me to talk about? And mm. I think about 80% of the people said, talked about Rogue One and, uh, the fact that I think among Star Wars fans, it's, uh, I think widely considered the best of the new lot. Oh, that's super cool. Um, I'm glad. I think that's uh, uh, thanks to Gareth Edwards, really, um, and the w what he wanted to do, the stamp that he put on it. I think that the things, I, I mean, there a, a lot of terrific writers w worked on that, and it's amazing that it sort of holds together, given how many people did. Um, but I think uh, the reason is, is his work. Um, you know, he was this fan as well. I mean, in some ways, Rogue One is kind of a fan movie. Yeah. Um, it's just a fan movie if you were given all of the tools at your disposal. And I think, um, I mean, I, I like the other films very much. Uh, obviously, I can't judge uh, without bias. But, you know, Solo, when, when you look at that, is a movie made by some of the original makers of these films. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but this is, Rogue One was... Um, the people who grew up on it um, and who who had desperately wanted to 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 do it and do it uh, correctly when they had the chance. So I think there's a lot of deep love of especially episode four in it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when you're um, like for someone who can uh, to, who writes and produces and directs, what what goes into your decision making process career wise? Like when to tackle what? 
Right. Um, well, I think with directing, it it comes down. It has to be something that I really desperately feel I have to do, or I'll d- regret it deeply. Right. Um, Such so an I'm investment. Not, I'm not a gigging director. I'm mm-hmm. not thinking about what to do next, and I don't make a film a year, or even a film every two years. Um, and in part, that's because I, I can't necessarily stand the physical and mental pressure of doing it, yeah. or whatever. At least what I put on myself. And you know, it is a, a, a lot of work. Um, uh, and I have a family. I have three children, uh, and sort of it takes me away from them every time I do that. So I sort of have to justify. Yeah being a bad parent for a while. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so that's the highest bar to reach. Um, in terms of writing, I mean, I get kind of excited about when I feel like I know how to fix something occasionally, mm-hmm. which is sort of rewriting work. Uh, and also I love, um, adapting the work of, of novelists, yeah. um, and, and sort of trying to, uh, to convey what's great about th- those books in another medium. Uh, in a way that I, I would hope that the novelists themselves can approve of. Um, there, there's that. So that's kind of my connection to what I studied in college, which was English. Um, what else? Uh, acting. I will pretty much do anything anyone asks me, but nobody does. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Nice. Uh, and, and producing is kind of if I can help uh, somebody do one of those things, which is to say, like, work on something they really, really care about, um, then, then that's great. Um, you know, I've had been really, uh, uh fortunate in getting, uh, Kogonada's first movie made Columbus, which, um, was a beautiful film starring John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson. Uh, we're, uh, we are producing, uh, Lulu Wang, uh, her second movie, mm-hmm. um, which is based on a This American Life episode about her family, which she did. And, oh, and so yeah. it's really cool to be able to intervene, uh, beneficially in early in someone's career. Um, and also that's, that's true of this, uh, science fiction film prospect, um, starring, uh, Pedro Pascal that, uh, that went to, uh, South by Southwest this year. Um, uh, that, that's sort of the best part of producing, I think. Um, yes, that is the long answer to your short <laughs> question. Well, I mean, speaking of working, uh, on books, you know, about a boy, was such a great book, and you guys, uh, you and your brother did such a wonderful job. It's a beloved movie, um, hmm. and you got an Oscar nomination for screenplay for that. Yeah, well, that was crazy. I know that's great. Uh, what was it like working with Nick? How involved was he? Uh, well, Nick, uh, I think at the time, you know, now he can adapt his own stuff. He can adapt other people's stuff. He can yeah. write stuff from scratch, and he's doing just fine on his own. Um, which he probably intended to do all along. So I think he found it probably a bit of a too painful a prospect to stay too close to events when we were shooting it. So yeah. we had some some really good meetings with Nick early and and liked each other a lot. But I think he decided to step away uh, so as not to see how we were going to mangle what what he had done. Oh no! Um, you know, fortunately, he approved uh, of it after the fact. I think uh, he's been you know really kind about the movie. Um, uh, I think he was sort of surprised at, at um, people not noticing how much we changed the final uh, kind of act of the uh, of the novel, let alone yeah. um, you know changing the time period. Um, but um, it's really gratifying that he likes what we made of it. Um, that said, I suspect that um, uh, that if he had done this later in his career, he would have adapted his own work and done it really beautifully. Right. Uh, um, but, uh, so the, uh, the, the chance to adapt that, um, and, 
thus to get um, the only shred of uh, uh, prestige. <laughs> oh, that's not <laughs> true. <laughs> um, uh, uh, w- was was fantastic. It just felt I, I felt uh, very much um, like I was born to write that script, or rather, sort of educated to write that script because I kind of like lived amongst the English for for long enough, having gone to high school and college there, that I understood what was going on um, and felt like capable of translating that into an American mode in some ways. But in some ways, it was an English picture. Yeah. And it it was like this fantastic moment in a test screening in London when someone said, oh, it's a good English film. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, uh, That was a really charmed production, the whole thing. I, I, I remember just everything that we decided to do kind of working out the way that we had wanted it to, which mm-hmm. is, which is fantastic and doesn't, doesn't really happen. Like I remember at one point thinking, oh, it'd be great if, you know, Badly Drawn Boy could write an original album for this movie. Yeah. That'd be cool. And we called him up and he's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and uh, everything in that sense kind of worked out uh, from Hugh Grant uh, doing it to sort of taking a flyer on Nick Holt, um, e- even down to, um, to Tony Collette, uh, doing it uh, uh was was an extraordinary uh, experience yeah me. she's so great is it is it mm-hmm. weird to uh do you see nick holt today and like marvel at what a big grown yeah. handsome grown man he's become <laughs> he is a complete hunk yeah um and he's he's a really good actor too uh and you you don't necessarily know if somebody who can play a 12 year old really well at 12 is going to be able to play uh grown-ups um yeah, I mean, we stay in touch, and it's I, you know, I just love uh, sort of watching him uh, grow. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's really funny. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, where are you from? You said you went to high school in England. Yeah, well, I'm from New York originally, but my dad had gone to school in England. He went to to uh, grade school, the equivalent of grade school and high school in England, mm-hmm. and so I was supposed to just go for a year to check out my dad's old school in London uh, when I was 14, and I ended up staying and uh, doing my exams there, A-levels, they're called, mm-hmm. kind of the end, yeah. of, end of high school exams, and then got into Cambridge, and I stayed, and I stayed for a few years. Uh, and um, that, and I've ended up working on a few movies there, which is, which is great. So I'm New Yorker, but sort of uh, mid-Atlantic uh, in, uh, uh, like, education. Right. What is your uh, mother from England as well, or? No, my mom is from, she was born in L.A., mm-hmm. but her mother was Mexican. Her, her mom was actually a Mexican silent film actress. And oh, wow. her dad, my grandfather, was from uh, the Czech Republic, which at that time uh, was Austria and then became Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. and then became the Czech Republic right. through various world wars, uh, uh, hot and cold. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm from, I'm kind of from all over. I mean, like a lot of Americans are. Now with, with you and your brother, was that, was filmmaking something you always wanted to get into? Or I mean, is it in your family lineage at all? It was. Um, so my, my mom um, was an actor. Um, she's actually in a film which is in my film. So she was in a film called Imitation of Life in 1959 um, that um, she played a, 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 an African-American woman passing as white um, in this uh, uh, great Douglas Sirk film from oh, 1959. Wow. Uh, her father was uh, uh, a producer and agent, and he was an agent for a lot of uh, European uh, filmmakers. He was Ingmar Bergman's agent. 
Um, he was uh, Billy Wilder's agent. Um, Holy and, cow! Uh, yeah, so there's there's that sort of that part of the family goes goes back in in terms of filmmaking. And my my grandma was um, uh, known as La Novia de Mexico, which means the sweetheart of Mexico. She was kind of the um, the first. Uh, talking picture star in Mexico. And before that, she'd been a silent film actress in, in Hollywood. So wow. that's kind of a cool story too. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, we, this is like the family, uh, uh, business. Oh, that's amazing. That's really cool. Mm. So, uh, were you and your, I mean, so obviously you guys, I mean, I usually ask people about their influences growing up. And certainly when you have an older sibling, um, I have an older brother and an older yeah. sister, you get a lot of culture fed through them. Absolutely. Was that sort of your jam as as kids growing up? That was definitely. Um, you know, all the good music uh, and and stuff came through my brother, and eventually he started uh, writing plays, um, which he still does. Uh, and uh, when I graduated from college, we thought it would be kind of a wheeze to uh, to to write screenplays together. We didn't really have a clear idea of what was going to come of it. It just mm-hmm. seemed like it might be a cool thing, and maybe it would work out. And, uh, and it did, we, we, we worked hard, but we were also very lucky. I remember on my 21st birthday, we had pitched a story to MGM and they, uh, they said, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll pay you to write a screenplay. It was a long time between that and getting screen credit, which was on Ants, mm-hmm. um, which I think came out in 1998, 97. Yeah, that sounds about but, right. um, uh, uh, so that was like seven years to, to that point of just, um, working on our own stuff and rewriting other people's stuff, but never really getting anything made. Um, and then it, it sort of all started with, with that for us. Did you ever have to yell, my grandfather was Billy Wilder's agent, for God's sake? <laughs> I feel, the funny thing is, although we did have this sort of background in film, it was like an old film and European right. film, like from a totally different era. So like uh, by the time uh, the 90s rolled around, nobody nobody really cared. Um, but now it's it's nice to, to look back on yeah that's awesome um i got to see operation finale mm. uh two days ago cool thank it you was for watching it great <laughs> excellent <laughs> it was really good man I'm, I'm uh i mean again with kind of uh not having like a direct through line through your career you've you've done all these interesting films things like ants and american pie about a boy mm-hmm. and then you do uh what it what feels like a heist movie, even though it's not exactly, right. mm-hmm. but it sort of has the DNA of a heist movie as a as a, a sort of a ticking clock thriller, which is, you know, it's one of yeah. my favorite genres. And I know that's something in, in screenwriting where they say, hey, if you can get a ticking clock going, you have the luxury of having a, a real ticking clock built into the real life story. Yep. Which was uh, it really gave it a lot of intensity. Um. Uh, thank you. I'm glad it did. Um, yeah, in some ways it's got sort of all these genre, uh, bells and whistles. It's a, it's a kidnapping plot, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the true story of Mossad, uh, uh, kidnapped, uh, Adolf Eichmann, who was, uh, the kind of logistics coordinator, uh, of the, the Holocaust. Um, they found out he was in Buenos Aires and put together a team to extract him and take him to Israel for trial. A pretty extraordinary cinematic story from the get-go. Oh yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I, I I wanted it to be a kind of a hybrid of um, of a genre suspense thriller and also um, at the same time kind of reckoning with uh, who this person Adolf Eichmann was and, yeah. and what it was like for the uh, 
for a team of uh, people whose families had been um, destroyed in the Holocaust to have to live with him for the 10 days in which they wait in a safe house to be taken out by LL. Yeah, man. It was, I mean, it was just so intense because, uh, you know, it, I felt like about half the people just wanted to torture and kill him. Yeah. Uh, but you, you also, as a filmmaker, and I think to your credit, you know, you needed to tell the story also of this old man whose response is, am I to blame for all of World War II? Right. You know, so it was really interesting to kind of, and of course, he is a bad guy, and there are some he really is a very bad guy. tough, yeah. affecting scenes in the film. But um, I think to your credit, to even indulge that line of thought from him uh, was pretty necessary. I think so. I mean, I, I think it's important uh, to um, to see the people who perpetrate these um, crimes as human beings, not because we should feel sympathy for them, mm-hmm. but because we should be alive to the possibility of it happening in our time, yep. in our country, in our culture, uh, in ourselves uh, as well. Um, so uh, I think the temptation is always there be, to, to make them as evil uh, as possible um, on the surface. Uh, but I, but um, we aimed to sort of try to seduce the the characters and in a way the audience into mm-hmm. viewing them as as people as well. Yeah, and uh, it's it's interesting. Like you've had this long successful career, worked with all kinds of people. But I imagine even at this stage, uh, to be directing those scenes with Ben Kingsley and Oscar Isaac, just the two of them, like that had to be pretty cool. It is uh, extremely cool. I mean, on on the one level, you can just sort of let them let them fly, um, and know that you're going to get great stuff. Uh, uh, on on uh, another level, um, sort of to try to uh, keep up with them and what they're doing uh, is is a huge uh, challenge. And you know, we, we, even with a studio film, time is always running out in terms of the number of takes you're going to get to uh, to sort of solidify what the what the character is going to be mm-hmm. um so it is uh it's exciting it's it's really daunting um you know any any actor who's been working as long as i have been working as a director has actually been in three or four times as many movies as i have directed so that uh is interesting as well um they bring a tremendous amount of experience of different uh performances uh to the table uh but um it was actually when all was said and done surprisingly smooth the whole the whole process um there wasn't a lot of hammering hammering things out yeah well when, um there there were some scenes with Ben Kingsley as uh the young Eichmann mm-hmm. how did you do that was that all makeup or was there some uh CG involved there was some CG uh there was some CG involved we're getting pretty good at doing that yeah um, it really looked believable i thought and you didn't i think the key to that stuff is not overdoing it and hanging yep. too long, um, not to mention another Star Wars movie. I won't go there. Right. But uh, you, you, you sort of played it just right, I think, and it came off as super believable. Oh, thanks. I'm glad. Um, you know, it's it's really tr- sort of tricky to try to get that stuff right, um, to uh, sort of de-age a person to mm-hmm. the appropriate level uh, that um, that is right for the scenario, not to have it go into Uncanny Valley. Yeah. Um uh, to maintain the the uh, sort of performance qualities, it was, it was a company called Shade VFX in Los Angeles, and it worked very hard. Los Angeles and New York, and we we all worked very hard together to try to get that right. How did the story come to you? 
Uh, I was sent the uh, script by MGM uh, two years ago. Um, uh, John Glickman, who's the head of things over there, uh, knew that I had had some experience with the period because of my my dad. My dad wrote uh, biographies of uh, prominent Nazi party members. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, and I sort of helped him put together his library and did some, uh, helped him with his research and uh, copy copy read his manuscripts so i was kind of immersed in this stuff uh, mm-hmm. as a child um and so in spite of the fact that my first movie was a teen sex comedy right. <laughs> this was like not totally alien to me yeah um so I, I and i hadn't had a chance to 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 do something in this period um that was it was very exciting yeah i mean it was just beautifully shot it was a very very good looking movie thank you that's um javier Aguirre-Sarobe, um a uh um a wonderful Spanish uh, DP who also shot The Others and The Road, which is a very beautiful movie, oh, shot yeah. Blue Jasmine. Uh, he has a uh, beautiful sort of burnished um, uh, yet still realistic uh, style. And he and I have now worked together on three movies, kind of know each other's ways. And um, uh, 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 I think that a great thing about Javier's work is that he doesn't have anything to prove. We're not kind of pushing camera moves and, mm-hmm. um, you know, gyrating around, uh, uh, or, or taking on, um, uh, sort of artistic angles just for the sake of it. Yeah. It was not flashy. It, it, it just came across as a very, just a good looking movie. Oh, thanks. That's the best way to say it, I think. Uh, and then Nick Kroll is in it, which... Uh, yeah. Big fan of his comedy, and it's... Uh, I mean, there are a couple of lighter moments with him, but mm-hmm. he he definitely played against type here, and it was good to see. That's a serious role. And, he, I mean, he's actually a very serious, thoughtful guy, as I think a lot of uh, 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 good comedians are. Um, there's always a sort of a darkness to, uh, to comedy. Um, and um, I think... Uh, Nick brought a real thoughtfulness to the, to the part. Um, he had actually, when he was a kid, known, uh, one of the, uh, members of the expedition, um, who, who was, uh, an associate of his, his father's, uh, mm-hmm. Nick's father works in corporate security. Um, so he, he also sort of felt connected to the, to the part. Yeah. Was it important for you to try and cast, uh, Jewish actors as much as you could for those roles? Um, I felt like that wasn't a requirement. There are some non-Jewish actors playing Israelis. I felt like there's, there's, I mean, there's probably an elusive uh, balancing point at which you are, um, you know, goy washing things, as it were. Right. Uh, and there's also a point at which you're you're being a little too restrictive by saying that only uh, Jewish actors can play Jewish parts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it. it we, we, there are a couple of wonderful uh, Israeli actors in the film, uh, Leo Raz and Ohad Noller. Uh, I mean, it, it, the actual, the mission itself, uh, on the mission itself, some of the uh, agents were born in Israel, uh, but the rest of them were born in Germany and Poland and Romania um, and Hungary. Uh, and so it was kind of an international uh, uh, group anyway. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh well, I can't wait for, you know, I'll, I'll give it a good plug with the listeners before and after in the intro piece, but uh, I really you. can't wait to see this thing in the theater. Uh, awesome. I, I think I think you're going to do quite well, sir, with it. I hope so. Yeah, we worked hard. I hope, I hope so. <laughs> 
You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This summer, click into Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from RYOBI. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the RYOBI 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the RYOBI leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with RYOBI's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work, done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. So we can move into Lawrence of Arabia now. Uh, let's move. <laughs> which is, um, I have to admit, I had never seen this movie. Oh, man. And like, if you had to see it because I said so, did you know you were in for an over three hour long movie? I did. I mean, this is one of those that I've always <laughs> wanted to see. I knew it wasn't like, well, what is this? I've never heard of this. Um, right. It's been on the long list. And I've, I've admitted there are so many classics like this I need to get around to. So I owe you uh, some gratitude for uh, for quote-unquote, forcing me to watch this. It's but, a great film. Oh, man, just unbelievable. Um, 1962, David Lean uh, directed. And then, uh, you know, of course, Peter O'Toole. I don't Was that his very first movie? I believe it was his very first movie. That's um, crazy. I think it was introducing Peter O'Toole. He may have been in a bit part in something or other, but it's the one that really broke him. Yeah. Um, you didn't, I don't suppose you were able to see it on a big screen. Uh, that was it, it, every once in a while. I knew you were you know, going to ask it, that. Get shown. <laughs> because no, not, not because not to sort of say like, you, yeah, you, you, you can't speak properly to it, but it's an amazing experience to, to see it on the big screen. Yeah. It played here. Um, I believe the 70 millimeter print played in Atlanta mm-hmm. a few years ago. Didn't get to see it, but now that is like on my list to, cause I know they still um, show the restored version. Yep. Uh, from time to time. And I have a great big TV, and but I definitely want to see this on the big, big screen. That's, I mean, it's fantastic. all about the big, big screen. Um, it was definitely shot um, very wide, very big. Um, I think it was Jack Cardiff, wasn't it? Was it the, the uh, or is it Freddie Young? It's Freddie Young. Freddie Young. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Nicholas Rogue shot a uh, second unit. Interesting thing about. I saw that. About that. Um, that's pretty wild. Um, yes. Okay. So here is, uh, I suppose, the what's problematic about my saying this is my favorite movie 
there are no women in this movie. Uh, yeah. and, and so it's like, it's hard to, uh, to hang on to it, uh, uh, as a favorite movie in these times. Um, but I'm going to make an argument that in some ways there, there is a, uh, a, a kind of, well, as, as Noel Coward said about Peter O'Toole, if he were any prettier, they'd call it Florence of Arabia, that, um, <laughs> there, there are some sort of, uh, gender fluid dynamics in, yeah. in the movie. Um, but I, I fully cop to the fact that it's kind of lame to like a movie that has, uh, z- zero women in it. However, I do think that the screenplay and cinematography and performances are absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, but to be fair, like, would this movie have been any better if they forced in some kind of lame love relationship? Yeah, uh, probably not. And probably the fact of the matter, it, 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 it in a way, it is about horrible things that men do. Um, and so I don't by any means think that uh, this is entirely a heroic story. As a matter of fact, I think it's got a running critique of um, of, of the heroic male ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm not sure that that would make it a better film as, as the film that it is. Yeah. And for the time, I mean, I had, I went and did some research afterward cause I didn't know much about T.E. Lawrence or his story, mm-hmm. um, widely speculated and generally agreed upon that he was uh, probably gay. Yes. And the way they treated in the movie for 1962, I thought was pretty brave in that they didn't, they just kind of let the movie be, didn't make anything over the top, but didn't cast any judgments or make any big statements about it either. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, uh, I think, uh, I think that the, his character, Omar Sharif's character, Anthony Quinn's character, uh, it's a, it's a bit of a love triangle, uh, uh, as well as the, um, the young, uh, kind of Arab uh, young men who mm-hmm. are serving Lawrence. There's there's clearly something there. Uh, in as much as the film was able to address those things, I, I think uh, it did sort of entertain the fact that these were men who were in love with one another mm-hmm. uh, while they were doing wh- what they were doing. Um, yeah. And I don't I don't think it shames them for it either. I think it's very clear that there are these kind of very intimate um, bonds between between these guys. Um, that weren't seen as uh, beyond the pale or or something shameful either. Um, you know, there's this really funny turn in in the dialogue when um, uh, Anthony Quinn uh, says to Omar Sharif that you know Lawrence has lied about something, mm-hmm. and he says he is not perfect. Um, and it's clear that for that entire time, they've both been kind of maintaining this notion that, that, uh, that Peter O'Toole, who is perfect enough looking and seeming, uh, is, is some kind of, uh, uh, ideal. Um, and, and that ideal is kind of broken down over the course of the movie. Yeah. I mean, it was a really interesting character piece with, uh, especially having never seen it and heard so much about it. I knew it was this epic of epics and that the photography was amazing uh, in 70 millimeter, these super beautiful wide shots, but I had never heard much about the story. And, um, right. like I said, didn't know about T.E. Lawrence. And it's just such an interesting character piece that this guy, this, you know, blonde, blue eyed, uh, gorgeous Englishman mm-hmm. goes by himself to the middle of nowhere because he has an affinity for the Arab people 
and yep. kind of becomes almost godlike to them. Yeah. Um, and and falls from grace and and is eventually kind of discarded at the end of it too. I mean, there are all yeah. kinds of interesting to me interesting critiques of colonialism of uh, of heroism of uh, of the West um, going on in this movie. That uh, if you just sort of went on what people say about it, it really seems like kind of a gung ho uh, war story, a heroic mm-hmm. great man war story. Um, and, and it, you know, there are these extraordinary, uh, scenes like the, the attack on the Turkish, uh, mil, uh, uh, armored train, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, attack on Aqaba, all, mm-hmm. all of these amazing war scenes, which are genuinely rousing. And there's, uh, there's kind of a survival adventure, uh, going on, but at the same time, uh, 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 underneath the surface. There's this real sense that T. E. Lawrence was a deeply troubled, tortured figure mm-hmm. who uh, who could not um, live with his uh, Englishness, could not become an Arab, which is perhaps what he most wanted to become, um, was was lost uh, in the world, um, was deeply vain, uh, uh, kind of strangely masochistic. Um, and uh, and ends up both becoming a hero and being totally uh, undone by his experiences. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's a long movie, but it never feels long. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like, I mean, he hangs on certain scenes, but it always seems, David Lean does, but it always seems like for the right amount of time, and it should be a close to four-hour movie. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I know maybe these days it would be a miniseries or something, but um, to me, like if you if you know what you're getting in for, it's a pretty amazing ride. Um, and um, so I I had the chance to to work with Ann Coates, the editor of Lawrence of Arabia. She edited uh, the Golden Compass. Uh, oh wow! For me, um, she recently uh, passed away. Uh, rest in peace. Um, a very very dear incredibly talented uh woman uh who you know maybe made the greatest cut in all of cinema history um uh if you uh, with the match the match yes the match cutting to the to the rising sun mm-hmm. um and uh who had an incredible sense of of pacing and not pacing in terms of speeding things up but in terms of the right uh way into and out of uh, scenes, um, you know, who, who sort of popularized uh, flat cuts as opposed to transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, th- that, this movie, like amongst the many things that are working at absolute, uh, highest gear, uh, is the editing of the film. Uh, I think there's just so many, uh, uh, aspects in which this film absolutely shines that, that this was like kind of the obvious choice for me. Yeah. I mean, the cinematography gets so much attention here i'm glad that you shouted out the editing and uh and the writing just the i mean you talk about character complexity you you have a a character in lawrence that uh wants almost to be worshipped by the arab world Mm. is almost like a traitor to england in certain ways Mm -hmm. as far as where his heart is and willing to execute a guy but also having a weird aversion to guns and violence in some ways right yeah, it, it has a very strange, it has a very interesting take on violence and the appeal of violence and brutality, um, uh, the, the impulse towards it. 
there's a very strange moment in the film in which um, uh, Lawrence, he and his uh, kind of band of marauders have uh, derailed a train and the, they're killing the uh, Turkish, not just Turkish soldiers, but Turkish citizens on board this train mm-hmm. crossing the desert. And uh, Lawrence uh, looks down and sees a, a wounded uh, uh, Turkish officer and the Turkish officer fires at him and kind of wings Lawrence, and mm-hmm. and and Lawrence is, he says, good, good, good. <laughs> it's a very strange line reading, too. He's happy to have been shot, mm-hmm. but not killed, because, and, and the movie doesn't set this up terribly carefully, but it's, I mean, that is to say, it doesn't set up in an obvious way, um, but uh, he is pleased to have been injured, um, I think in part because he now feels like a fully, uh, fledged male, which of course is, is sick. Um, and I think also very carefully the, the, I think David Lean cast the Turkish officer very carefully as well, because he's a very beautiful man. Mm-hmm. There's something very strange, uh, uh, uh and, and homoerotic going on in that, um, in that wounding there. Um, there's a kind of a, uh, you know, it's like a, r- a rite of passage or a loss of, uh, loss of virginity in a way. Um, which also, f- frankly, happens. It, Lawrence is, is raped later. You don't really, uh, it, it's not really um, uh, incredibly obvious, mm-hmm. uh, but um, that's cl- that, to me, it's, that's clearly what, what happens when he is later uh, captured uh, by the Turks. Um, right. So there are all kinds of really extraordinary, uh, intense and deep things going on in this movie. Um, that uh, really set it apart from, say, Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, which is, you know, David Lean's, I think that was his later, I think that came later. That was actually anyway, right before. he. I'm right before, okay. He did Bridge on the River Kwai, this, and Dr. Zhivago, all three in a row, which is pretty Man, astounding. what a run. Um, but Bridge on the River Kwai, I think, is a lot more straightforward uh, uh, in terms of how it deals with kind of men and, and heroism. Yeah, I mean, during the scene you were talking about where he's... Uh, uh, has the little flesh wound on his arm. He 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 almost wants to be shot again. I feel like because he doesn't mm-hmm. hide. He kind of stands there, right, while this guy keeps pointing and shooting at him and missing. And yeah. I was I was just like, "What are you doing, man? Get out of there!" But there was this weird. Uh, that was definitely a strange scene to to kind of yeah. unpack. It is a strange scene. I think he is daring death. Uh, at that point, he maybe mm-hmm. wants to die. He certainly appreciates getting injured, which is deeply strange. Um, and um, uh, and the, there's that, that dynamic uh, uh, works throughout the film. Later, the reason that he's captured by the Turks is that he decides to just w- kind of uh, uh, waltz into a Turkish-occupied uh, Arab village. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinks, you know, he's, he says to his uh, comrades that he's invisible and he can never be caught. Um, and then there's this extraordinary scene with um, Jose Ferrer. Yeah. Uh, in which, um, you know, Lawrence, who thinks he has sort of trained himself to uh, withstand uh, physical pain and punishment, um, is, uh, is broken. Um, and... And you, you can see his sort of dawning on him that he's not uh, what he thought he he was. Um, yeah, 
Um, so, and, and, and of course, eventually, by the end of the film, he has done all these heroic fil- uh, uh, things, and he has won these great victories against the Turks at the sacrifice, uh, in a way, of his, um, his decency. Um, and um, he, all with the aim of, of giving the Arabs, as it were, uh, their, uh, their own country. Um, and, um, and he's screwed over by the British diplomat, mm-hmm. British and French diplomats who negotiate the Sykes-Picot agreement, which kind of divvies up, uh, divvies up that part of the world into, uh, Iraq and Syria and, and Jordan, um, which, and that, that's another thing that I think is really cool about the movie, which is that it's about Iraq. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not about uh, Baghdad, but it's, about, but it's about Iraq and Syria and how uh, the Western powers completely fucked up uh, this part of the world by um, double dealing uh, and um, uh, exerting their power uh, geographically. Yeah, I did a big history deep dive after mm. after watching that, that cleared up a lot of things. Um, and it was interesting with the complexity of character like you he almost never gets what he wants because on one hand you get the feeling that what he wants most would be to be like king of a Middle Eastern country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also kind of wanted to be regarded as an English war hero and to the point right. where he has this um, uh, journalist following him around, photographer based on a real guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you can tell he's eating it up and he wants the press. But there were there was speculation I think still today that he was not as important as he made himself out to be. I think that's right. I mean, I think um, uh, there, somebody in the movie says it's a sideshow of a sideshow uh, um, that uh, the war in, in the desert wasn't as crucial to kind of winning winning the war uh, as the outsized uh, heroics of, uh, and sort of dash of the, um, of the campaign uh, seemed to, to let on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a sort of a, in some ways a, very, a deeply cynical, uh, telling of, of this story. Yeah. Um, you, you can see at the end too, when he's, uh, that last scene where he's being driven away in the car and he passes the guys on the camels and you can see mm-hmm. in his face, he, he wants nothing more than to be on a camel again. Right. Yeah. He's completely lost. Um, uh, and I, I mean, he, Lawrence's later in Lawrence's later life, he actually tried to sign to to sign up to serve uh, as um, as an enlisted man. I think it was in the RAF. Actually, I'm not 100 percent sure of that. But he wanted to have another run at it, but not as the um, celebrated war hero. Um, so there, there's something. I mean, I guess admirable, but also deeply sad uh, uh, about that. And of course the movie opens with um his death, which of course has now become an old chestnut mm-hmm. um in terms of of biopics, but is pr- pretty uh, interesting in terms of how you know we we see this character riding on a motorcycle and having a somewhat ridiculous accident due to his own um um foolhardiness. Mm-hmm. Um uh and um, we never see him on a motorcycle again, or see him in England again. Um, so the, the sort of been told in this this interesting r- reverse order. 
Um, um, which is to say, no matter what he's going to achieve in the rest of the film, this is what he's going to, that's, this is what is going to become of him. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This summer, click into Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from RYOBI. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the RYOBI 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the RYOBI leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with RYOBI's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work, done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Just some of the shots. I mean, now as a as a as a film viewer today to see you know so many big battle scenes that mm-hmm. the more large in cg they, they they get the less impressive they become i feel like that's absolutely true and so uh, the more you this, can do it's amazing to see like the scene where they were unloading the horses on off the train mm-hmm. or just the scenes those big wide shots of the camps or the or the the guys going to battle on the camels and horses i mean to look at that and know those are all real things is just yep. astounding. Yeah, it is amazing. And I think that you can feel it as well. I think that, that uh, the human mind is able to process the fact that these big CG battles are actually not taking place in physical space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it probably reaches high watermark in terms of uh, uh, CG battle stuff in, in Lord of the Rings. Um, and everything else is kind of aping that. Um, uh, massive technology, um, but uh, but to see it in camera uh, it is pretty extraordinary. The the scale of the operation, the fact that I think it was the the, the Jordanian army was uh, was kind of enlisted in in uh, mm-hmm. performing a lot of these battle uh, sequences uh, that they were filming on location uh, in the desert, uh, stuff that you wouldn't do nowadays, but that is incredibly uh, effective. Uh, yeah. Because this was in in the days though when you would shoot for months and months and months on end, um, and you know wait for the weather to be right and all kinds of stuff that we do, we can't do nowadays or we won't or don't. Yeah, I, th- I think one of my big takeaways besides just the the scope was camels are amazing. <laughs> camels are pretty wild. <laughs> they were a, yeah. a, a character yes. in this movie. 
There's a lot of camel stuff in this movie. <laughs> it's really good stuff. Camels are amazing. Water is amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, what was your what was your introduction to Lawrence of Arabia? What was the when was the first time you saw it? Do you remember? Oh man, I feel like uh, the, my, the first time I saw it was probably part of it as a kid. Um, uh, when it got mixed up in my mind with this much more schlocky movie called The Wind and the Lion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know that. And movie. Uh, I think for and and also actually my my uncle. Uh, produced a movie called March or Die. There's a sort of brief flourishing around the 1970s of Arabian uh, or Foreign Legion war movies. And I must have at, the, at that time seen on TV some really crappy cut down version of Lawrence of Arabia, which still went on longer than I was allowed to stay up. Um, and I didn't uh, see it again until I was probably at, like Film Forum or something. And then I remember very vividly seeing it at LACMA on the mm-hmm. big screen uh, with, uh, with overture and intermission and everything um, with my brother and my friend uh, Matthew Huffman and just being kind of bowled over and then reading about uh, uh, the making of the film, uh, Robert Bolt's screenplay, um, and, um, and just finding it not only kind of really beautiful but incredibly intelligent. Yeah, and then that score is just so iconic now. Yeah, um, just amazing score that uh, I believe the the composer. Yeah, he wasn't even the first choice. I think he was sort of third or fourth on the list. That was interesting. But uh, yeah, yeah to, and he didn't have a whole lot of time either. Apparently, so he. Um, and of course, you don't know if it's a chicken or the egg thing, but maybe it's because the movie was so iconic. But it really, man, when you hear that music at the beginning and uh, you see that wide frame, it's just like chill inducing. Absolutely. Yep. So it won Best Picture, Director, Score, Cinematography, Art Direction, Editing, and Sound. Mm-hmm. And Sounds lost, right. yeah, Peter O'Toole lost to Gregory Peck uh, for To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, no shame there. No, no, can't, can't feel bad about that. And uh, Omar Sharif. Although I think, I mean, honestly, I, uh, I think um, Peter O'Toole's portrayal of Lawrence is more uh, nuanced than Gregory Peck. Uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird. I think that you're, you're winning not just for the performance, but for the character yeah. in To Kill a Mockingbird, a sort of approving nod to the character. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Little one note. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then Omar Sharif lost, uh, and then the screenplay did not win as well. But, um, right. yeah, I mean, it, I, I can't wait to screenplay, see Screenplay, wait, what won screenplay? God, screenplay should have won. That's what I think To Kill a Mockingbird did, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Wait, uh, Okay. Okay. So it must have been. Did they have adapted screenplay and screenplay at that time, or was it only one category? I, I, I think it was adapted, and and this was considered adapted from uh, T. E. Lawrence's from right Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Or, yeah. Or some, um, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, I think it's a, I think Lots of Rave is a better screenplay. Frankly. I think I'm with you. Uh, and here's a couple of bits of trivia. I'm sure you know this stuff, but for the benefits of the listeners, mm-hmm. fairly interesting. Um, most of the movement in the film goes left to right, uh, right. very purposefully because David Lean uh, wanted to emphasize the journey aspect of it. I uh, yep, yeah, I agree entirely. I think that we that in the West we see things as going left to right, probably because of writing. I, I wonder if it had been made by an an Arabic uh, filmmaker, it would have gone right to left. Oh, yeah. I noticed that O'Toole wrote right to left in one of those scenes, which I thought right. was a pretty yeah, subtle. Presumably, he's writing Arabic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's cool. 
and then for some of those great shots, uh, David Lean's uh, cinematographer, Freddie Young, apparently got a hold of a 482-millimeter lens Holy crap. Uh, in order to shoot, uh, successfully shoot a mirage. And uh, Yes, okay, well, that, that would be when, uh, when Omar... When when you first uh, see Omar Sharif mm-hmm. arrive at the at the um, the uh, well, that amazing shot of of him and his horse kind of appearing out of um, out of this mirage. Yeah, for the yeah. benefits of non filmmaking listeners, what does a four hundred and eighty two millimeter lens mean? A four hundred and eighty two millimeter lens is radically outside of the bounds of what you normally use uh, in making a feature film. You might go as you know, you're usually working somewhere between 24 millimeters and 100, 100 being very tight, uh, narrow uh, frame uh, for, for close-ups, 24 being something very wide, and 400 and whatever millimeter lens that is, is something like a specialty lens for maybe for industrial purposes or something. Um, Who knows? Uh, and it means that the degree of compression between foreground and background is, is enormous. Um, so you can shoot something very far away and it will appear to move forward very, very, uh, slowly. Um, it, it, it'll kind of be flattened. Um, and, and that's, uh, that's what you would use to, I guess, catch a mirage, but also something kind of, um, hovering into view in, in a mirage, like all of these lenses especially when you get to the length, this is going to be boring now, but of a 450-something millimeter lens, there are many, many elements to the lens. There are many, many lenses uh, uh, through that sort of tube of the lens so that the, the light is doing all kinds of gnarly things, and they have to be very carefully, um, very carefully calibrated in order to work properly. I appreciate that insight. It was not boring mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> I think people appreciate that. Uh, All right, well, we finish up with a couple of quick segments, uh, one called What Ebert Said. This movie is a complete disappointment. I'd like to go Uh. back and see what Mr. Ebert thought of these films. Uh, He gave Lawrence of Arabia four stars out of four. Fair enough. Uh, And he had this to say, uh, what a bold, mad act of genius it was to make Lawrence of Arabia or even think that it could be made. The impulse to make this movie was based, above all, on imagination, the story of Lawrence is not founded on violent battle scenes or cheap melodrama, but on David Lean's ability to imagine what it would look like to see a speck appear on the horizon of the desert and slowly grow into a human being. It is a spare movie in clean, uncluttered lines, and there is never a moment when you're in doubt about the logistical details of the various campaigns. Lawrence of Arabia is not a simple biography or an adventure movie, although it contains both elements, but a movie that uses the desert as a stage for the flamboyance of a driven, quirky man. That's about right. I mean, for quirky, I might <laughs> I might say sort of unhinged, but yes. Yeah, quirky was a weird word choice there. Uh, and then Whack, we finished wacky, five. Maybe. <laughs> he was wacky. Uh, man, his eyes were just so blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we didn't even mention that Alec Guinness uh, portrayed oh, a Middle Easterner. And, well, know. of course, now now it would be beyond the pale to do that. But sure. if you're gonna if you're gonna whitewash, may as well get Alec Guinness to do it. Yeah, he did a um, great job. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, and then we finished with five questions um, with Chris White's. What's the mm. first movie you remember seeing in a theater? Uh, it was Midway, starring Charlton Heston, mm. uh, about the Battle of Midway. Super schlocky movie. Uh, total gung-ho war film, which actually had a, a little spot of, of compassion for uh, uh, Nisei Americans. 
uh, Japanese Americans. Um, and I saw it in the Sag Harbor uh, movie theater on Main Street in Sag Harbor, New York. It burned down last year and is just being rebuilt, which makes me very happy. Oh, wow. All right. Uh, first R-rated movie you remember seeing? Oh, man. Well, I don't was Was, was Alien R-rated? Yes. Okay. I think that's the one I can really first remember seeing. There, there's probably something on the, in in early HBO that I saw and shouldn't have seen. Um, uh, seeing Alien, clutching my mom because I was terrified. I, I was still a kid at the time. It was a really bad decision to take me to that. How old are you? Ah, oh, man. When does it come out? I was born in 69. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I was not allowed to see it. I was born in 71, and my brother... Mm-hmm got to see it and I didn't. It was sort of that thing where he was just old enough to see these things. Right. And uh, he, uh, I've told this story on the show before, but he came home that night and literally sat up for what felt like the length of the movie telling me the whole movie, <laughs> which is pretty great for a big brother. That sounds good of him. That sounds nice. <laughs> um, will you walk out of a bad movie? Mm, uh, I will walk out of a bad movie made in bad faith, right? I think that some mm. movies are clearly uh, uh, crappy. And n- nobody is really, really gives a crap uh, about it. Um, that, but not a bad movie made in good faith, which is to say that it's hard to make even a bad movie. Um, so I will hang in there out of a kind of a ritual obligation to the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you, you, you get a trick or two even out of something that, that stinks. But that's a great answer. A, a bad movie made in bad faith. I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh. It's like you don't deserve for me to sit here. <laughs> yeah, like, you listen, if you didn't care about it, why should I? Uh, all right, number four, we usually tailor to the guests, so I'm going to go with uh, what movie and movie history do you most wish, uh, wish you would have directed? Mm. Um, or written. Or, or written. Or both. <laughs> oh, man, I mean... Uh, it might be, I mean, it's another one of my favorites is, is uh, High and Low, uh, the Kurosawa film, mm-hmm. which I think is yeah, sheer brilliance. Um, you know, a film that, that maintains tension, even though it's mostly shot in one, one room. Um, something like that. That would be fantastic. All right. Good answer. Uh, and then finally, number five, movie going one-on-one. Uh, what do you do at the movie theater? Where do you sit and what do you eat? Um, I usually don't eat anything. Uh, I know that's very sad, but I don't like crunching. I don't like being distracted by <laughs> goobers, which if I did eat something, it'd be goobers. Um, okay. and, uh, let me see if it's a full crowd, I would rather be front row center. Oh. Uh, if not, I'll try to get the best angle on, on the, the screen, which would be about five rows back in the middle. Front row, huh? Yeah, sometimes I like to to uh, be totally immersed in it, but actually, it, it really depends on the on the the distance between the front row and the screen as well. Right, sure, sure. Uh, because uh, I I I don't want to um look around too much. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. That was uh, fun. Really loved Operation Finale, and congratulations on that. That's awesome. Quite an achievement. Th- thank you, and thank you to your listeners for listening to me. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, man. Okay, thank you. See ya. Bye-bye.
All right, everybody. How did we do? Did we cover the movie enough for you? I hope so. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia. There was a lot there, and uh, he had really good insight on it. It was cool to talk to a director um, who was able to explain things like what a long lens means uh, to someone like myself, and maybe to you. So I hope you learned something there, and uh, really enjoyed uh, his take on uh, the characters and um, just the shooting of this film, which was just uh, amazing all these years later to see a movie like this with those huge frames and all those extras and uh, soldiers and horses and camels. And it's all real, everyone. Uh, It's not like it is today. So pretty amazing that they could pull a movie like this off. I believe uh, Steven Spielberg has described Lawrence of Arabia as a miracle of a film, and I, I couldn't agree more. So big thanks to Chris. Uh, he was a really nice dude. It was great to talk to him. And uh, maybe we'll meet in person one day. Support his work. Go check out Operation Finale in theaters August 29th. Uh, very good, beautifully shot, uh, taut thriller of a film. Highly recommended. And uh, Oscar Isaac and Ben Kingsley. It doesn't get any better than that, everybody. So go check it out and support his future work. And uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. And until next time, why don't you go bring a Nazi to justice? Movie Crush is produced, engineered, edited, and soundtracked by Noel Brown and Ramsey Yunt at HowStuffWorks Studios, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com, Tennessee. Sounds perfect.